friends, welcome. Today I'm speaking with marine archaeologist Sean Kingsley. And we are talking about a new book that he was a part of. Perhaps you recognize the accompanying TV show that had Samuel L. Jackson attached to it called Enslaved. And this conversation is all about the incredibly fascinating field of diving on sunken slave ships and what that can tell us about the past. So let's literally dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I could not wait to get here this morning to record this podcast episode because this topic is so unbelievably fascinating. Thank you so much for being here today, Sean. Oh, Sharon, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Mm, When I saw just like the cover of your new book, Enslaved, The Sunken History of the Transatlantic Slave Trade, all the little receptors in my brain were like, well, we need to read that. (laughs) Uh, And I did. And it was absolutely fascinating because it had never really even this concept of underwater archaeology, of things like exploring sunken slave ships had never even entered my mind as like something that anybody was doing or that we should do. So first of all, absolutely fascinating. Secondly, how did you get involved in doing this? Well, yes, we are a rare breed. There aren't too many of us marine archaeologists. (laughs) Well, it goes back to childhood, really. Um, You know, I had a lovely childhood. My parents were always dragging me to cultural things and to castles. And as a teenager, I can actually remember I was pretty good at judo. And I was sort of, you know, second in the Southern England Championships. And I got into a final of a competition. And in between, we went up. My father took me up to an Iron Age hill fort. And on the top of this blustery hill fort, I found a bit of iron sticking out of a hill. And I thought that has to be Excalibur's sword, right? Long story short, I missed the final because I was busy trying to dig up Excalibur's sword. So, you know, I was into history and a hopeless romantic as uh, as a youngster. And then uh, a little bit later, still as a teenager, I went out to Israel. And I wasn't really sure about it. Prayer and God, not really my favorite subjects. But while I was there, you know, I went to an ancient site and I saw pottery and marble columns and mosaics sticking out of a hill. And the penny dropped. It was a real eureka moment for me. I realized that this is the face of the past and I wanted to make it my career. So from there, I went to underwater, helping a local museum. And the guy who ran that museum, a Dutchman called Kurt Rev, he said, yeah, we go dive and we go and dig tombs. And, you know, the Indiana Jones in me was really hooked. <laughs> Mm, yeah. Oh, it, well, I can see how it would be very, very exciting. But did you ever think to yourself, so you're fascinated by history, you become fascinated by artifacts that you see in both England and other countries. When did your fascination with diving enter the picture? Was it that experience with the museum? Because you now have a YouTube channel about shipwrecks. You are a marine archaeologist. And again, you have this book and you have a an entire magazine, an entire periodical dedicated to this. Was that the genesis of diving for you? I knew that I loved the archaeology and I knew that I loved the past. I also knew that I was scared of the water. Yes. So I I was the kid in the swimming pool. I was the kid even in the swimming pool who was sure the shark was going to eat my feet. (laughs) And then I realized I had no choice because the sea is even in my name, S-E-A-N. And yes, it was when I was out in Israel and I was working for a museum on, on opposite the Carmel Mountains, one of King Solomon's ancient ports. 
And I was there after my first degree and there was an enormous storm and it just blew these thousands of seahorses, blew the seabed. And there was wreck after wreck after wreck. There were 12 wrecks lying all in a row, like in a car park. And I figured I have to get off this. I have to confront any fear, which is ridiculous, and, and, and get down there if you want to get to it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you like take a nap, read a book, go for a run, meet a friend for coffee? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If your time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. And therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I know so many people who have been helped by talking to a licensed professional. It helps them identify what their priorities are and structure their life around the things that matter. So if you are thinking of starting therapy, consider giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. Have you ever experienced a dry, itchy scalp or wondered why your color isn't lasting as long as your hairdresser promised? Well, unfiltered, mineral-filled water could be the reason why. Did you know hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin? And that about 85% of the United States uses hard water, which is filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. And that's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is a breeze to install. They have a unique quick filter replacement feature that allows for seamless filter replacement, unlike any others on the market. Go to canopy.co to save $25 off your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, my listeners can use code SHARON at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Being a part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all, she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection, and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. 
Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. There is this sense, you know, as I was reading your book, you were describing some of the dives that groups have been on and the incredible sea conditions that they have to endure where there's zero visibility and very strong currents and, you know, all kinds of dangers and perils to their own lives. So it it seems like this type of archaeology also requires a tremendous amount of courage on the part of the people who are actually doing the exploration. I think that's true. But if it was a single person, you'd be a lot more worried. But especially more for underwater work, it's generally very much teamwork. And the deeper you go, the bigger and more professional the team has to be. So how I ended up on the enslaved story was through Simcha Jakubovic, who's the real visionary behind this project. He was the director and initiator of the TV series with Samuel L. Jackson. And it so happened that I'd been working with an American team called Odyssey Marine Exploration in the English Channel. And while you look for one specific wreck, the glory of that is you find dozens, and in this case, 300 other shipwrecks. And one of them was a wreck which at the entrance to the English Channel to the west, which was in um, 110 meters. Now, you can dive there, but it's incredibly dangerous and you can't do any work there. So we used a robot. And the robot could work in the harshest environment, 24-7. And yeah, for that, you need a big team. And the joy of that is you're not diving. You're sitting there as a middle-aged person drinking your coffee, you know, looking at all these screens and recording and trying to make sense of it. Mm. Who do these kinds of wrecks that you uncover, who do they belong to? And what kind of rules govern exploring them and potentially recovering artifacts from them? Well, that is a book on its own right there. It's a very important question and increasingly now today. Um, We're actually at a tipping point right now in what I call the battle for the deep. Mm. And the technology which started really in 1985 with the discovery of the Titanic over 3,000 meters deep, it's now so complex we can go virtually anywhere. Uh, down to 8,000 meters. And before that, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't an ethical problem. It wasn't a legal problem because we could not get there. But uh, the answer is, effectively, if it's a merchant vessel, and if that merchant vessel from any nation went down within 12 nautical miles within a nation's territorial waters, it belongs to that nation. But if it went down outside 12 nautical mines, well, that's where you get into that wonderful world of romance, treasure, and finders, keepers. And that's why since the 5th century BC, there's been such a well-organized salvage industry who are willing to put life and limb to go out there to return these goods to the stream of commerce. Now, all that changes, of course, if you're a warship. And if you're a warship of any age anywhere, it still belongs to the flag nation not through ancient or early modern terminology, through a modern one. So there's a modern rule, the Sovereign Immunities Act, which says that any spaceship, aeroplane, naval warship, and someone tacked in historical wooden ship, anywhere in the world, still belongs to the original state. The idea being that if an American warship went down in the China Sea, people adjoining that country couldn't interfere with any human remains or down nukes, for example. And it's bilateral and it works very well for everyone. The interesting bit in that, of course, is that I'm not aware of any historical warships from the 18th, 17th century that have any black boxes on it or state Mm. secrets. So there's still an element of make it up as you go along 
in underwater archaeology. And a lot of those kind of legal loopholes, should we say, they're being tied up by local laws and by something called the UNESCO Convention on Protection of the Underwater Heritage, which has basically got rid of treasure hunting, which, depending on where you come from and who you speak to, is a good or a bad thing. So there's, there is a balancing act to be done with the past. Mm. I really enjoyed how your book alternates between discussing the history of the transatlantic slave trade and between people today who are sort of hunting for these underwater artifacts, particularly related to slave ships that were sunk and what can be you know, garnered from looking at these wrecks, from obtaining artifacts from these wrecks. And I really thought this phrase was especially poignant. You said, the transatlantic slave trade is not some irrelevant story that happened centuries ago of no consequence to our sophisticated 21st century ways. And I wonder in what ways do you think that the transatlantic slave trade is of consequence to us today? Mm. That's a complex question. When you talk about the transatlantic slave trade, the adjectives don't work. Oh, it's horrific. It's appalling. It's violent. What, what does that mean? It goes beyond that. You know, we're talking about 12 and a half million Africans trafficked across the Middle Passage from West Africa to the sugar and coffee plantations in the Americas. And 13% of that, 1.7 million people died on the way. What does that look like? Those statistics don't make any sense to me. They're just in an amorphous mass. And that's why I thought that you know this was such an important book to write. The hatches of the sunken past have been locked for too long. And the shipwrecks have this power. What we found with the divers in Costa Rica, for instance, there's an indigenous people called the Bribri. And the Bribri were always told you're of Mayan extraction. That's what your ancestor is. And they look in the mirror and they say, well, I don't think so. I look African. How can that be? And they've researched down that a couple of Danish ships carrying something like 600 slaves actually went down in their waters in 1710. And they went diving there and found out that actually those slaves had been freed, enslaved people. They were not yet slaved. Those enslaved people had been freed and they went into the jungle and they were adopted by the Brebridgeide and that's how where their ancestry came from. But by diving on these shipwrecks and being able to touch the artifacts and to really connect with the past, they had an emotional reaction. They have a visual reaction and they start asking the right questions. And for me, I think that's incredibly powerful and important in our own small way as marine archaeologists to kind of you know, throw that stone into the water and create ripples and to try and turn on the next generation to the power of the past. How do you find slave ships that have gone down to even dive on? Uh, if we're talking about over a million people having perished in shipwrecks or, you know, from illness or a variety of causes in the middle passage itself, how do we even locate what it is that we want to study? Yeah, that's the state of the art, really, isn't it? And the answer is generally you don't. There are 3 million shipwrecks in the world's oceans. 1,020 slaver ships were lost in the world's oceans. And I would say we found less than 10 of them, which makes them rarer to find than pirate ships. So in the case of the English Channel, the Odyssey team tripped over it. They were using side-scan sonar. 
which is basically bouncing sound waves off the seabed and they will reflect over anything which is elevated above the seabed and then you send down the robot to have a look and that's how they found that in other cases such as the Loisden of Suriname uh, which was carrying 700 enslaved people from Ghana that is an historically very important shipwreck because it saw the largest mass murder of African people during the whole trajectory of the slave trade. And it took the wrong turn, this ship, the Loisden, and sank within sight of shore. Now, the cargo and the ship were insured, and the captain and crew were concerned that if they let these 700 enslaved people out, they could riot or they could sink the crew. So they bolted the hatches, and they sat on them until the ship went down further enough and so that they all drowned. So it was conscious murder. But they still managed to salvage the 23 kilograms of gold and give it back to the Dutch authorities and get their salvage award. So historically, a Dutch team, they knew that ship went down there and they knew it was of the utmost importance to the world and to the consciousness of Holland, which has generally not had a great relationship with confronting its enslaving past. So they've been throwing all kinds of technology out there, um, including magnetometers. So if you've got something which is hidden under the mud, you can't really use side scan sonar because it's not going to pick up on it. Um, so if you assume that a ship had cannon on it or had iron fittings or the shackles, all these enslaved peoples were shackled or manila bracelets, you would expect them to be picked up in the in the magnetic signature. And so they've been looking at lots and lots of magnetic signatures, but unfortunately that ship is still stuck in the mud and it's still to be found and to bear witness to that horrific story. What are the biggest obstacles to finding these things? Is it just the depth? Is it lack of record keeping? Like not knowing where these things went down? What are the biggest obstacles you face? All kinds, from environment to cost to sponsorship to perception. You can imagine that the largest tranche of money that's ever gone into looking for shipwrecks is for Spanish galleons, because that's mm -hmm. got shiny stuff on it and that can yield returns. And then you have warships, which are historically you know, important and governments want to find them. And there really are very few bodies of people out there who are actively going around the world and hoovering up the seabed looking for, for slave ships. There is a team out the Smithsonian that are trying to do that, and they've been working on, on wrecks off South Africa. The dive group that we work with, Diving with a Purpose, they're not actively looking for slave ships, but they're raising consciousness, and they're actually able to represent as well, being, being black divers as well, uh, looking for these materials. So it's a really good question, and certainly absolutely more work needs to be done. There's this incredible database which actually lists every ship that was involved in all aspects of the slave trade. You can go through those and you can look nationally where there might be wrecks. And really, that's that's a case for a local government. Unfortunately, we're at a point here that you can imagine that you can't really manage underwater cultural heritage if you don't know what's there. But most countries don't have master historical logs of what they've got in their waters, um, which makes it <laughs> quite difficult to do. But you kind of put your finger on it that Sharon, we're still just very young as a discipline. The scuba was only invented in 1948, took about till the 50s, 60s for Jacques Cousteau to start developing underwater vacuum cleaners to, you know, to suck up and show us how to dig. The kind of robots which are allowing us to boldly go where no man or woman has gone before have really only come in to the 1990s. So 
have patience with us. We'll get to them. We'll find more in the future, I hope. What does one do when you discover a shipwreck of historical significance of this nature and you're able to dive on it? Perhaps you're able to recover something, artifacts from it. What happens to them? Again, that's a good question, but it depends on who's giving you a license to go and dive that site. So if it's in the English Channel, outside territorial waters, and you land that material in England, then you declare it for what's called the Receiver of Wreck. And the Receiver of Wreck is an ancient institution that goes back beyond the 16th century into the medieval period. Now, if the state thinks that that's such historical importance, then it can put a block on any export license and try and keep it for a national museum. Uh, and it's an interesting question. And it also brings us onto the, the case of restorative payments from uh, in the modern era for, for what's going on. Harvard has put a $100 million paychest on the side to try and right some of the wrongs of the college of what happened previously within its doors with the slave trade. Glasgow University in the UK has put $20 million on the side. And I think it's really good if that can go into education and giving scholarships. And there's all various things could be done with those kind of treasure chests, shall we say. But, you know, actually what I would like to see, there is an awful lot of material that's out there. Um, and there's a lot of great media and, and imagery. I would like to see some of those universities, the church, banking institutions who may feel that they're culpable. And I'm not saying they're culpable, but why not put your hand in your pocket and let's have a museum, international museum, of the transatlantic slave trade on every continent as a legacy for future kids to learn about. I have been using the Olive and June Manny system to do my nails at home for years, years. And I wouldn't keep doing it if it didn't work, if I didn't like it, if the results didn't look good, if it wasn't way more convenient than going to the nail salon, I wouldn't keep doing it, but I do. And I consistently have nice looking nails. I really like that Olive and June protects my nails, keeps them from chipping, splitting, cracking and I love that Olive and June includes everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. They also have salon grade tools that are designed to make your DIY easier. When you get the Olive and June Manny system, you can customize it with your choice of six polishes. My favorites are like the light colors. I like nudes, but they have amazing vibrant shades and the polish doesn't chip for seven days or more. It breaks down to like $2 a manicure. And once you practice, once you watch their videos and follow their tips and tutorials, you will find that it actually is easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. Visit oliveandjune.com slash Sharon for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E. A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash S-H-A-R-O-N for 20% off your first system. Support for today's episode comes from One Skin. It is really important to shift your skincare routine with the changing of the seasons. Y'all know that I'm into skincare. I've been into skincare for a while now. And one of the things that I really love about One Skin is that they have so much R&D in their products. This is not just cute packaging. This is not just celebrity endorsements. Their products treat the root causes of aging, not just the symptoms. 
In a third-party 12-week clinical trial performed by third-party research organizations, OS1 face was clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier. Very important, the main job of your skin is to be a barrier improve skin health markers, and diminish visible signs of aging. Wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users. Again, this is independent third-party testing. They combine tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting-edge longevity science to create the world's most effective product to target skin aging. And I love how easy it is to integrate into your skincare routine. You can keep using what is already working for you and integrate OneSkin. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code SHARON at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code SHARON. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New Year, healthier skin. That's One Skin. Help your skin stay younger and healthier for longer with One Skin. I have a question for you. How is your sock drawer looking these days? A little scary? A little scary after a long winter? Maybe it is time for spring cleaning? A little refresh, getting rid of any old pairs that are no longer serving you? Bombas just dropped a bunch of absurdly soft new socks, tees, and underwear to help you get that drawer in a better place while doing a little good. Once you try Bombas, let me tell you, it's gonna be real hard for you to go back to buying big box store socks. I know this from experience. They are obsessed with little details like foot-hugging honeycomb arch support. Your socks don't just like slide down and get all bunchy in your shoes when you wear Bombas. They have anti-blister tabs. I love those because the back heels of your shoes then don't rub against your heel where you get blisters. And they have cushioned footbeds. Again, I can't tell you what a difference it makes. And Bombas has a one purchased, one donated mission. Every time you buy their socks, tees, or underwear, you also donate essential clothing to someone facing homelessness. To date, Bombas has donated over 100 million clothing items and counting. So get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash Sharon and use code Sharon for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash Sharon and use code Sharon at checkout. Let's say you dive on a wreck and you come up with things like elephant tusks, copper bracelets, things that you know were involved in the transatlantic slave trade, things that are, you know, important artifacts. And you also mentioned in the book about how in some cases there are actual human remains of some kind. What would happen to those kinds of things? Are those left down there undisturbed? Are those excavated? I mean, it sounds like because it's such a new field that there is perhaps not a, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, perhaps not a protocol of like, here's what we do if we discover human remains on a ship. Well, yeah, there is. Um, and that will depend on a, on, a, on a national body. I mean, I'm not aware of any human remains that are found on any slave or shipwreck. 
I think if they did discover the Loisden of Suriname, that, that Dutch mm-hmm. labor, yeah, there's a really good chance of finding human remains because of the muddy environment. And the mud is very good for preserving organics. Then they've got an ethical debate. Do you recover those human remains or do you let the ancestors sleep or do the ancestors want to sleep there? Should they be repatriated to their country of origin? Ghana, the Gold Coast, should they be repatriated there? These are really difficult decisions, and that would become a political hot potato between a Suriname government and a Ghanaian government. You wouldn't be allowed just to, once you found the Loisden, you couldn't just dive in and go, here we go, let's start sucking sand. You would have to write um, a project design about what you want to do, how you want to do it, why you want to do it, how it's being uh, sponsored and paid for, how you're going to conserve the material. And these days also you're required to give a sense of what will happen with the material, what will be the repository, who's your partner museum. And one of the things that I read with interest in the book too was about how Portugal was involved in trafficking roughly half of the enslaved Africans that were brought to the quote unquote new world, brought to the Americas, brought to the Caribbean. Is there any sense from any of the countries who were involved in the slave trade from Portugal or from any of the other European countries, is there any sense in the sort of archaeology community that they should do something about this issue, that they should pay to have these things recovered, that there is a responsibility on the part of the government to engage in any kind of exploration for history purposes or for science purposes. What is that kind of climate like? That's a really good and tough question, Sharon. (laughs) And it sort of goes back to one of your earlier questions about why we do what we do. I call what you've just discussed, I put it under the category of collective amnesia. And it, it is interesting because as much as there is trying to make sense of who these ancestors were, who these Edward Colstons were, who were working for the Royal African Company and doing these despicable things, as much as there is that readjustment which has to be done practically what is actually happening underwater is 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 a zero quite frankly there is a great interest in wrecks and slaver wrecks you know national geographic for instance did a special with tara roberts going around and trying to look at all these wrecks but that's all reactive these things have been found most of them have been found by chance there's very little proactive going on we are breaking a story in the next two weeks on this very subject Um, which is going to be quite hot. But Portugal is involved in that. Portugal is a very interesting case because the Vatican, America, England, France, even including Ghana and and a lot of African countries, they have apologized for their role in the transatlantic slave trade. Spain and Portugal have not apologized for their part in the transatlantic slave trade. And as you said, they you know, they did some very serious heavy lifting amongst them. And it kind of makes you want to scratch your head a little bit, because if you go to these countries full of wonderful people and culture, um, they're full of statues of explorers and conquistadors. But, you know, we cover it in the book and also in Simcha Jacobovich's film, Lagos in Portugal. That is ground zero, the birth of mm-hmm. the transatlantic slave trade in 1420. And, you know, it's where Henry the Navigator brought in all these slaves to work in the plantations. And, you know, that put a seed of an idea in people's minds, which grew and grew and and mushroomed. Well, 
a few years ago when the archaeologists were called in because the developer was making a new car park and they found 158 skeletons and they did DNA and based on the finds that they were locating around those skeletons, it turned out that these were West African people who had arrived, just arrived on the ship and through illness or disease died soon after. And they were not buried because they were heathens and non-Christians. They weren't buried within the city limits. They were thrown basically in a dump with the lepers outside the city. And rather than putting a monument there or trying to create some kind of archaeological museum or spectacle around it to, to bear witness, what did the Portuguese do? They literally built a mini golf course on top of it. And you would like to think in the modern day that that sort of thing wouldn't be done. And you know the Portuguese and the Spanish sort of attitude as well, we weren't the only one who did it. And people were doing slave trading down to biblical times. So yeah, there's definitely a problem. And as a selfish marine archaeologist, yeah, I'd like to see governments stumping up more money to proactively go and illuminate this issue. So interesting. One of the things I'm also curious about, as a lover of the ocean and of marine life, I am always very curious about what is it actually like as a diver? I See, here's the thing. It could never be me because <laughs> I get motion sickness from snorkeling in mouth. Oh, really? Okay. Gosh. So I'm very curious. What is it like when you are diving on a shipwreck. So much of our sort of the paradigm we have about things like scuba diving is like, and then you can see the the incredible coral and you can visit the angelfish and you can see the sea turtles. People do it as a hobby. They do it recreationally. They do it for fun. But when you are talking about marine archaeology, it can't just be that. It can't just be like, well, look it, there it is. That was fun. What is it actually like to dive on a wreck? If you're just going on a recreational dive, and you're going down there and it's 45 minutes and then you're going to have coffee and chocolate. Yay. Oh, good. It, it's wonderful. If it's a career and profession, you know, you can have years of preparation to go into a project. The discovery of the endurance of Sir Ernest Shackleton up in Antarctica, 10 years, 10 years of preparation went into that. And it doesn't matter whether it's 2,000 meters deep or two meters deep. So much can go wrong from equipment to environment that you're out of control. So I think, you know, it's interesting. I went from being that hopeless romantic kid to becoming a hyper-realist. And I think, you know, part of that is, is managing expectations about what you can do on shipwrecks. I mean, I remember being out in Israel and we'd found a 6th century AD early Christian Byzantine shipwreck with Holy Land wine on it. Well, what's better for promoting and selling wine than something that was grown on soils where Jesus and the apostles walked. You know, it was a perfect, unique selling point. And it had these wine jars on it. And we'd exposed the shipwreck. We got a license from the government. And even in three meters of water, these shipwrecks where you have the opposite problem, because actually in 20 meters, it'd be easier because you've got the waves coming in. You're in the breaker zone. So you've got, you're nauseous mm. all the time. And then you know that a storm is coming in and you've just exposed all the hull. So you literally have half a day to record the wood. You know, you can have motorboats coming overhead. So, you know, it is a thing of beauty. Generally, if you're doing survey work, you're just diving on a wreck rather than doing a project, which is time sensitive with money issues. It, it really is a thing of beauty. And, you know, there's nothing better in the world if you're stressed. You know, I've always had times that, okay, I'm going to have to put on classic FM now and chill out, you know, <laughs> 
what I would really love to do is put on some scuba and go down to 30 meters and just not talk to anyone and blow bubbles. Thank you very much. Goodbye, world. <laughs> but, you know, even when you're doing robotic work, I can remember when we were in the English Channel and we were working on a, a Corsair, a pirate ship, a French pirate ship, and the weather was awful. There was literally horizontal plumes, probably produced by global warming of this stuff that shouldn't be there. And we sat this really expensive multi-million dollar robot on the seabed, which was the eyes and the hands of the archaeologists, and waited and waited and waited. And while we're waiting, suddenly on the comms from the captain, he says, you hear incoming plane in attack formation. So <laughs> you've got bad weather and uh-huh, you've got uh-huh. fear factor as well. You know? <laughs> so, so yeah, expect the unexpected if you want to have a career in sunken ruins. Being a part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but Beneath it all, she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection, and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. It is really important to shift your skincare routine with the changing of the seasons. Y'all know that I'm into skincare. I've been into skincare for a while now. And one of the things that I really love about OneSkin is that they have so much R&D in their products. This is not just cute packaging. This is not just celebrity endorsements. Their products treat the root causes of aging, not just the symptoms. In a third-party 12-week clinical trial performed by third-party research organizations, OS1 Face was clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier. Very important, the main job of your skin is to be a barrier. Improve skin health markers and diminish visible signs of aging. Wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users. Again, this is independent third-party testing. They combine tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting-edge longevity science to create the world's most effective product to target skin aging. And I love how easy it is to integrate into your skincare routine. You can keep using what is already working for you and integrate OneSkin. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code SHARON at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code SHARON. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. 
New Year, healthier skin, that's one skin. Help your skin stay younger and healthier for longer with one skin. Have you ever experienced a dry, itchy scalp or wondered why your color isn't lasting as long as your hairdresser promised? Well, unfiltered, mineral-filled water could be the reason why. Did you know hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin? And that about 85% of the United States uses hard water, which is filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. And that's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is a breeze to install. They have a unique quick filter replacement feature that allows for seamless filter replacement, unlike any others on the market. Go to canopy.co to save $25 off your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, my listeners can use code SHARON at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What kind of training is required? You mentioned a group that you, is also in the book, Diving with the Purpose, uh, and how people can get trained to dive on wrecks of historical significance or on sites of historical significance. What kind of training is required? So it's different. On land, you can sign up for a dig for a day and get that experience and have the t-shirt and walk away. Underwater is a bit of a different situation generally because you're working with such sensitive material you know you just have to have your your fin at the wrong place on a piece of wood that's several hundred years old and it's gone so marine archaeology really you need to get an ma as a, as a basic standard and there are various universities at southampton texas a&m Haifa university you know we can get those sort of qualifications but then if you want to do so sort of the academic side and, and really run projects you have to get those phd letters um after your name but then there's a more sensible approach, which we have in the UK, which is the adopt a wreck. If you find a wreck, your local dive club, work with English Heritage Historic England or with a heritage body and become the custodian of that. And, you know, I've got some colleagues who are very, very hardcore divers in the North Sea, which is the worst conditions you can imagine of Eastern England. And they weren't professional marine archaeologists, but they found the Gloucester which was an English warship from 1682, which had James, Duke of York, the future king of England on it, and his wine mm. bottles and his medicine box. And he left that ship in his night tails. He left everything behind. So the most important wreck over here since what we call the Mary Rose. And they went and did a course with a group called the Nautical Archaeology Society, which creates a basic standard for learning how to record shipwrecks. So there are different models, but you know, you're not as a recreational diver just going to be able to go out there and start being able to read a, a shipwreck. What do you wish that people knew? What do you wish that people knew about diving on things like a slave ship or about marine archaeology in general? Well, 
planet Earth is 71% water. There is water inside human beings. You know, it consumes, it surrounds us, it defined us. It's been the basis of, of power and dispatches and creativity and ideas for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I would like, from an educational point of view, that's part of what we do is sort of spreading the Gospels. But there's an awful lot of politics, Sharon, in what we do today. And the reason that I saw Watch magazine was to kind of rewind the clock to the time of Jacques Cousteau and the sunken sea and the beauty of the oceans and the fish, which, quite frankly, they're just not there anymore. You know, so many species are being wiped out and we've got overfishing. But I really would like people just to be aware that there is just so much in the oceans. You know, it, it's said that we know more about the moon than we do about the bottom of the sea. How can that be? Why are we spending multi-billions to go up to space and what are we going to do if we find a little green man and, and shake his hand? Do you think he's going to invite us for a cup of tea and some scones? I, I'm not really sure. They might not like us. I don't think it's an either-or situation when it comes to the ocean or, or space. I'm being a bit facetious. But I would surely like marine archaeology sits at the very bottom of the ocean food chain. And I'd like that to change. I like that to change for many reasons. I think it's fun to dive. I think there's a lot of beauty down there. But I'm kind of reminded that, who are we? Sigmund Freud used to say that to, you know, to understand the adult, you must examine the child. And I would add to that, if we want to understand who we are today and where we've come from, we have to explore the infancy of humanity. If you think about the great art in the world, the Riachi warriors, all the bronze statues and marbles, the greatest of those have been found in the ocean, for instance, because of what we said at the, at the beginning of the show, the preservation is so good. But again, we're just scratching the surface. There is so much mm. down there, three million wrecks in the world's oceans. You can expand that from playing around with rotten pieces of wood that inside the bilges of these decayed ships down there, there's ancient microbes. And it is believed that those microbes, the majority are unknown. They're new species. And it's believed that they hold the answers to so many medical cures, including, it is suggested, types of cancers. So actually, I think we really have to study and explore that material, the majority of which is just, it's unknown. Um, right now, there is a group sponsored by Japan, the Nippon Foundation, and their plan is to map the entire world's sea bottoms by the year 2030 with something called multi-beam and that that shows a kind of color-coded bathymetry of the seabeds but the resolution is no good for finding shipwrecks so again it doesn't help us at all to fill in the holes of those three million wrecks mm, fascinating i bet some people listening to this are going to be like leave the microbes <laughs> down there <laughs> we don't know what they are bad things gonna happen uh especially speaking at the tail end of you know a global pandemic no no thank you no new microbes <laughs> i i take your point though of course that knowing what these are actually you know until we know what they are we, we can't know if they will be useful to medical science or not Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I absolutely loved learning more about this. I loved reading your book. And I just can't wait to continue to follow your work and continue to see what new discoveries await us. Well, thank you so much, Sharon. It's been such a pleasure for having us. And uh, as we say in my world, deep down we care. What an emerging field. There's so much to learn 
I could not believe that we have only found around 10 sunken slave ships and that there are so many rules about things that have yet to even be developed. You can find Sean Kingsley at his free magazine, Wreckwatch. They have a YouTube channel. And you can check out the book Enslaved, the sunken history of the transatlantic slave trade that Sean Kingsley wrote with a co-author, Simka Yakubovici. Absolutely fascinating. If you want to learn more about the history of the transatlantic slave trade or you're interested in marine archaeology, this book is for you. Thanks so much for being here today. This show is researched and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. Our executive producer is Heather Jackson. Our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. And if you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform? That helps us so much And we always love to see your shares and tags on social media. We'll see you again soon.